0: You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. Let me start over. Good morning. Good morning. 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 I want to take just a minute to, uh, before I start, just to welcome our guests. Uh, It means a lot that... uh, Uh, our guests here uh somebody invited you and uh it means a lot to us that you would that you would come and uh in in moral support if nothing else um i know some of the things that maybe we we do at a presbyterian church uh you're not uh first of all it's presbyterian not pescatorian or whatever that is uh they are totally different things and on top of that if you uh if you have any questions with regards to what it means to be a presbyterian what uh why are we doing the things that we do? Please pull uh, Ryan or I aside and we'll be more than happy to explain it. Uh, the second thing I want to do is just publicly uh, acknowledge that uh, uh, Adam has been gracious about, about uh, having us in, uh, in his facility. Uh, how long have you been here? Uh, just under two years. Just under two years. I remember being here when uh, him and Dallas first opened this facility. Um, they are both Christian men, uh, and they dedicated this place uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he would use this place uh, to uh, advance his kingdom. And, uh, and to this day, uh, both businesses are thriving. And on top of that, uh, this afternoon, there's a church going on in Dallas' side, and there's a church here. I think the Lord is blessing uh, what, you, uh, what you've dedicated, so I want to publicly acknowledge that. Thank you. Uh, We have been, as a church, going through the Gospel of John. Today we are at uh, John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. The Apostle John has been walking us through the early ministry days of Jesus. He starts his Gospel account with a description of who Jesus is. Where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Those are two very popular verses to know, John 1.1 and 1.14. An eye-opening statement, to say the least. John then moves on to the proofs of such an outlandish statement. He starts with the ministry of John the Baptist, as you recall. John, of course, as you already know, was a precursor to the coming of the Messiah. He was was the one that was the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the coming of the Lord. He was the spirit of Elijah. Jesus then calls on his disciples. He goes into Cana for the wedding feast. Uh, The uh, the, the host there runs out of wine, uh, which was... A huge faux pas back then. I think it's kind of a faux pas today, but not to the extent it would have been back then. And, uh, and Jesus saves the day by performing his first miracle. He turned the water into wine. Jesus then cleanses the temple, which, of course, causes quite an uproar. If you've ever seen the, uh, the meme, I love some memes. Some people are brilliant. One uh, when, when I saw recently was uh, when you asked the question, what would Jesus do? Uh, taking, uh, making a whip and beating people with it is in the realm of possibility, right? Uh, I find that funny, personally. Uh, and when he did that, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then at the end of chapter 2, John reminds us that Jesus knows what is in man, mankind. He knows what's in man, And the first example of that is Nicodemus, the powerful Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, the leader of the Sanhedrin, uh, who came to Jesus in the night and uh, was inquiring about salvation. The second man, talked about by John, was a woman. Not just any woman, but a poor, destitute, wretch of a sinner, sinner extraordinaire, and to top it all off, a Samaritan. Jesus does the unthinkable and speaks salvation to her, who in turn runs back to Sychar, the city that she was from, to share the good news with her fellow Samaritans. And what happens? They believe. Many Samaritans come to faith. These wretched, heretical, half-breeds come to saving faith. So the question, obviously, is what is going on? And now we come to the end of chapter 4 where we transition from Jesus pointing us uh, to who salvation is for, to the working of miracles and other such signs that will bring more attention to himself as the Messiah. In this last encounter of chapter 4, we see Jesus performing a miracle, his second in Cana. And once again, we see salvation coming to a particular man and... His household. What kind of a man is this? Well, if you'll follow me, let's read the text, John 4, verses 46 to 54. And it reads So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Ladies and gentlemen, the word of the Lord. If you would bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the fact that you've left your word with us. That we can at any time know uh, your word. You have given us many words as we will be covering here today. And uh, and you have given us the, the ability of reason you've given us the ability to study you have given us the ability to know and to know you more and we ask lord that you would open our eyes open our ears and circumcise our hearts that we may be obedient to all that you would teach us today in jesus name we pray amen all right so we open up with so he came again to cana in galilee where he made the water into wine john again reminds us of the first miracle The turning of water into wine. Here he is back to the same town where he caused all the fuss originally. The same place where he actually started his messianic work. As we have seen thus far from John, anytime something is mentioned from previous stories, it's an invitation to keep those in mind when reading the text. He didn't do it just for fun. In this case, we can compare what happened last time To what is about to take place in Cana again. The last time Jesus was in Cana. As mentioned in the introduction. A major faux pas was about to happen. To run out of wine at a wedding feast. Basically was what we might call a social disaster. So a request was made of Jesus by his mother. And what was the initial response? Do you remember? Woman. Right? He rebuked his mother. Hey, son, they're out of wine. This is not good. And Jesus turns around and retorts. Mom, what are you doing? Why are you dragging me into this? It's not my time. What are you doing? And then what happens? Jesus obeys his mother. Good son he is. He obeys his mother. And he saves the day. All right. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. An interesting little tidbit of information. Again, we must read John in light of the fact that his details aren't meant to be just a little add-on. Something to get his word count up, unlike my sermon where I I have to put more words in because I haven't said quite enough, right? Each and every line in the Bible has significance. The first thing we should note about this is the place. Jesus is back in Cana. And this uh, official is from Capernaum. Now if you look at a map, you'll see that the distance from Cana to Capernaum is not insignificant. It's about a four-hour horseback ride. The second thing to notice is is that this uh, is an official. What does that mean? The Greek word here is basilikos, which can be translated or understood as an official of the king uh, or a nobleman. He was a big deal. We might say in today's lingo he would be a very important person, a VIP in government circles. Now we must keep in mind that government officials in Jesus' time are not the same as our time. For example, we live in some sort of democracy, although we can we can wonder more and more about that every day. However, uh, we like to think we have some sort of say in what goes on in our government. If our government officials get out of line, we do things like park our vehicles on public streets, and we, we toot our horns, and we uh, set up bouncy castles, and throw a party until the government runs us over with horses or something or we get bored and go home if it's really egregious we'll vote them out next election if the election isn't tainted so then we live comfortably so so once we vote them out of course they can live comfortably off their uh, bloated pensions for their diligence and hard work on behalf of the unwashed masses for the remainder of their lives remember these are people we have to pray for but i digress What was my point? Jesus, in Jesus' time, the Romans were the rulers over the province that they called Palestine. And put in place local kings, I use that term loosely, kings or magistrates to keep the peace. There was little recourse for the masses to air grievances back then, especially against government overreach. There was no such thing as bouncy castles and and trucks where you could toot your horns so here we have a government official who is powerful likely very rich he's got servants after all um, and likely not at all tied to religious leaders so he might not even be jewish to be honest but here he is he's traveling four hours by horseback to cana in order to find jesus why his son was ill Well, how ill was he? When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 47. So here we have the rest of the background. The official indeed traveled a very long way for the sole purpose of finding Jesus. That was the only reason why he made that trip. He believed his son was dying. There by making him what we might think of as extraordinarily desperate. And who wouldn't blame him? He rides all the way to Cana. He finds Jesus and asks him to follow him all the way back to Capernaum in order to heal his son. This is obviously not a small ask. This isn't a small deal. On top of that, remember who he is. He is a person who wields an extraordinary amount of power, political power. This is not a man you trifle with. See, when a government official asks you to do something, it might not necessarily be an ask, if you know what I'm saying. When you add in the desperation of the situation, you have what I would think of as a potentially tense situation. And in this tense situation, what was Jesus' response? Much like the last miracle performed in Cana, Jesus responds to this powerful political official with a rebuke. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This was a common accusation of Jesus, especially to those in Israel. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, yet at the end of his ministry, before he went to the cross, we read in John ten thirty eight, Jesus imploring the Jews, but if I am doing them, them is here referring to his works or miracles, but if I am doing them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works themselves. So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's amazing to me that Jesus performed miracles. Some believed, but most did not. I don't know if you've ever run into people that you've talked to that likes to, or maybe you saw them on the internet or something. People, atheist types going, well, if if God would just show me a sign. He's, he's already shown you a sign. As Saiten Brugenkate likes likes to say when he's talking to somebody. He's an apologist and he says, How, uh, what sign can you give somebody when the person giving the sign has said, you already have all the sign you need? Basically what he's saying is, you have all the sign you need and the very fact you don't see it we can show you all the more and this is what's shown in the bible over and over again miracle after miracle like things that you and i haven't seen jesus performs these miracles and how many came to him in faith a few but not many right it's amazing to me that jesus performed miracles some believed and most did not yet we have in samaria get this In the last example, in Samaria, we have a people who simply listened. All they did was listen to Jesus, these half-breed heretics. All they did was listen to Jesus for a couple of days. And John tells us that they believed. They came to faith. They were born again. Jesus was their Messiah. And we have absolutely no evidence whatsoever of the Samaritans witnessing any miracles. In fact, we have the testimony of John who says the exact opposite. And many more believed. Why? Because of his word. They just listened. Not because of the miracles he did there, but because of the word. What was the response of the Jews who had witnessed miracles? They, they reached out. Remember, I just read it. 1038 What was after that once Jesus said I am in the or the Father is in me and I am in the Father believe the works I've done They reach out They don't reach out in a friendly way they're reaching out in order to take him to stone him to death for blasphemy It didn't matter how many miracles he did they would not believe So, here with the royal official, Jesus rebukes him and those around him. The term you here is plural. Both times you is is used by Jesus. They're both plural. Telling this desperate man who is coming to Jesus that he is not coming, that, that he's not coming for Jesus, but for what Jesus can maybe do for him. And what. And that goes for everyone else around him. Now, a quick look back at the first miracle of Cana, just so we have the context. What was Jesus' mother's response to Jesus' rebuke? Do you remember? She goes right on telling the servants to do whatever her boy tells them to do. She knew what Jesus could do and what he was going to do. She had faith. She had faith unwavering. What was the official's response? Not quite the same. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. In his desperation, the official, with probably his head down, this is how I picture it, he's, he's, he's desperate, he's got his head down, he just says, Sir, what I want you to do is, I don't want you to miss the importance of this. Here we have a royal official, in front of all his subordinates, and in front of Jesus' disciples, calling Jesus kurios, Lord. This is not a declaration of a recognition of Jesus as God, but it is a term used as a recognition of someone who is in a position of authority. We have this royal official who has political power, a Lord in his own right, submitting himself to Jesus, the true Lord of Lords the true king of kings. Once again, he begs Jesus to come. He knows his child is dying, and he believes Jesus can save him. Come down, please. Please come down before my child dies. I don't know about you, but I can hear the desperation in his voice, and it's truly heartbreaking. So what happens next? Well, just like the miracle with the wine, we have immediate obedience on behalf of those being spoken to. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 50. Jesus tells the man to go. This is what we'd call an imperative. Right? A command. Go. The second imperative is regarding the son, that he will live. It is interesting to me that the man so easily left. Why? Because up to this point and in antiquity, it was rather commonplace that miracles required the miracle worker to be present. This was common knowledge. That's why uh, the, the man was so adamant about Jesus coming to Capernaum. Please come to Capernaum and heal my son. If Jesus was going to heal his son, he had to hurry and he had to get there. Why? Because you can't have a miracle without the presence of the miracle worker. But here we have the man hearing the imperatives of Jesus, go. And what does he do? He believed the word of Jesus. Well, just imagine the man thinking, "Well, if if he settled it, or sorry, if he said it, if Jesus said it, that settles it. It's done." I believe it. Why didn't he insist on Jesus coming to Capernaum as per normal practice? Because he believed the word that Jesus spoke. He believed him. There was no need to implore further. There was no need to uh, challenge Jesus' understanding of the situation. He didn't have to go, Jesus, you don't understand. You, You have to be there. There was none of that. There was no longer a desperate situation to overcome. Why? Because Jesus said plainly, Your boy, I assumed it was a boy, your child, I should say, your child will live. What relief he must have felt. Of course, upon hearing the good news, the man left immediately to go back home. That's what you and I would do. We'd say, thank you very much and on our way, right? left immediately to go back home to see if Jesus' words were true. After all, there may have been a little bit of doubt. There was no way of the royal official to know for certain that his boy was healed. He couldn't pick up his phone and FaceTime his servants and go, Can you you put my boy on? I want to see if he's okay. Right? I was just talking to a guy named Jesus. He said you'd be all right. So I'm just checking in, right? Not possible. He couldn't do that. He had to trust that what Jesus said was indeed true. And in that trust, he obeyed. He left. Now the text, uh, the, text, sorry, the text takes us immediately to the man meeting up with his servants where he was given the news of his son's recovery. But I want you to notice the time frame. Notice the time frame. Don't miss this. He asked his servants... What time did he start feeling better? And what was their answer? Yesterday. Yesterday at the seventh hour. The seventh hour is 1 p.m. The fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. To what extent did the father of this dying child believe Jesus' words? You want to know the faith he had? He stayed the night in Cana. He could have rode back that very day. After all, it was early afternoon when Jesus made the declaration. He may have been tired from his morning ride to Cana, but all things considered, wouldn't you think that he'd want to go back as quickly as possible, back to his son, to see if he in in truth was, was recovering? How much faith did he have in the promise of God, in the promise of Jesus, that he decided... Well, we're in Cana. Let's do some shopping. Maybe hit the hardware store, right, while we're here. Maybe find a nice hotel to stay in. Have a nice meal and maybe a kosher brew or something. Hit the hay and make our trip in the morning. Don't worry, boys, it's on me, right? Do you know the peace Here's a question, honestly. Do you know the peace that this man had? This man must have had what the Jews call shalom. A word that expresses a peace in God that is second to none. No doubt in his mind. No worry. No fretting. No anxiousness. Just a peace of mind that only those in Christ can truly know and understand. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, having that kind of faith? Most of us, me included, here don't have that kind of faith and peace of mind. Shame on us, really. Shame on us. And what was the result of this miracle healing? And he himself believed and all his household. Verse 53. Now wait a minute there, pastor, if you're paying attention. Some of you might be saying, wait a minute. Didn't you just finish saying that the official was so full of faith after he stayed the night that he rested upon the word of God? And now the scripture says, after he finds out his son is free of his deathly illness that he believed. You read that right. So what gives? Well... For those of you that were paying attention and and were uh, thinking that, you have a good point. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever, have you never, ever had the wonderful pleasure of seeing Christ work in your life? Where you've prayed for something in faith, where you were helpless. To make something happen. But in faith, you prayed. Maybe you've prayed for years. And then one day God answers your prayer. And what happens when that prayer is answered? You believe. Your faith is replenished. You go on a spiritual high, so to speak. But you believe. More than you've ever believed anything in your life, you believe. That is what this is talking about. The official did have faith. Not by sight, but by faith. And upon seeing his healthy son, upon hearing the exact hour of his recovery, his faith grew. Faith is not a static thing. How do we know this? Mark chapter 9 verse 24. The man who begged Jesus to cast out the demon in his son who was trying to kill him. Do you remember that one? I believe, he says. Help me in my unbelief. We all have ups and downs in our walk. All of our faith is not perfect. We all struggle from time to time. There are times when we feel close to God. There are times when we feel far from him. We believe, but we're cold in our belief. The official wasn't cold in his belief, but upon finding his son healed, as was promised, his faith, his belief in Christ took another major step forward. And what was the result? His household... By the way, when, when you read in the scriptures, his household... That's everybody. That's that's servants included. Upon hearing the testimony of the official, and what a testimony that must have been, upon hearing the conversation that he had with Christ and seeing the results, believed in Christ. So much like the Samaritans, the entire household of a government official came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, a saving knowledge in faith in the Messiah. Praise God. Now, what can we learn or take away from this? So I've got four pieces of application that I'd like to share with you. First, we need to remember that afflictions, sickness and death, and life troubles happen to everyone. In our current society, we have swung radically into the idea that those with wealth and power have it good. And they do have it good. But because they have it good, they somehow don't experience the same problems as the rest of us. I'm sure if you've been paying attention to what's going on around us today, you have heard that very sentiment. I'm here to tell you today that this, most assuredly, is not the case. Job, probably the king, I believe, Job was a king. And Job 14, verse 1 says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. This is universal. It's a fact. Some might argue the more you have, the more unhappy you can be or maybe really are. Imagine for just a moment, from the perspective of the official in this account that we just read, you are powerful, you are wealthy. You have a son who is sick. It's not a problem, you think. Not a problem. I'll just call the doctor. The doctor, at the end of his visit, he comes and gives you a bill for his time. And he tells you, sorry, there's not much I can do here. No amount of earthly power, no amount of money was going to help his beleaguered child. Now, it's one thing for those poor and wretched to be helpless. But it's quite another, it's, it's got to be a massive wake-up call for those with, with everything, that have everything, to be suddenly thrust into the realization that all they have is powerless to stop death. The rich and the powerful may have a time when they understand themselves to be untouchable to life's pain and sorrows. But in the end, they will Understand, better than most of us, I believe, just how worthless and fleeting power and wealth play in the end. Affliction comes to us all. Do not be jealous of the powerful and wealthy, but pray for them. Pray for them. For even Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What was the response of the disciples upon hearing that? Then who can be saved? (laughs) That's impossible. Yeah, it is impossible. Except Jesus finishes the lesson with, but with God. But with God. All things are possible. We should be praying for those that are high and mighty. We should be praying for those with wealth and prestige, especially those that know not Christ. For they may not see their need for Christ until it's too late. But prayer and supplication can change a heart. It certainly may change your own in how you view and deal with them. Second application. We see from this passage that sickness comes to us all. Young, old, man, woman. You see, we expect illness and death once someone becomes old. Whatever that means. Ask most people in their 70s if they see themselves as old. I believe most would say no. Most 70-year-olds I know would say no. Who are you talking about, old? I'm not old, right? But we're not surprised when we open up the newspaper, right? For those that still actually read the newspaper. Chances are, if you still read the newspaper, you are indeed old. But we read the obituaries. It's fascinating how how people are... I've seen guys in the fire hall. They might turn to the sports section first, but immediately after they, they turn to the obituaries. It, it's weird. Right? But we read the obituaries and we see people that die in their 70s or maybe even some in their late 60s. And we don't really think much at all about it. Right? In our current time and society, we hear very little anymore about young people dying. We know they're out there, but rare, or but really it is. Very, very rare. So the child mortality rates in Canada in 1830 was 334 per 1,000 live births. If you are good at math, you will quickly figure out that that is 33.4%. 33.4%. To us, that has to be an astounding number. I remember walking through, uh, well, my parents uh, bought, a, uh, bought their plots and uh, wanted to show us. That, to me, is a weird thing. But okay, I'll go see your plot. Looks very nice. But we, while we were there, we started wandering through this old country uh, cemetery. And it's amazing how many young people are buried there. Many young people. It was eye-opening. Right? What is the number today, you might ask? The number is five. Five out of a thousand. 0.5%. What a blessing from God. But even today, there are those that have very sick children in hospital. We have dedicated hospitals in both Edmonton and Calgary that take these sick children in. If you've ever visited the children's hospital, it is both a heart-wrenching place and a place of profound hope and celebration. You don't have to imagine too hard the despair the official was in when he came to Jesus. He was desperate. Man, was he desperate. You also don't have to imagine the profound joy he felt when he saw his child healthy again. When his child was given a clean bill of health. Do you have... Physically healthy children. I know most of the children in here. In fact, I think I know all the the children in here. They are all healthy children. Praise God and give him thanks, but do not be deceived. Do not think that sickness and death cannot fall upon your doorstep. If it does, what will your response be? Will you rely upon earthly wisdom Will you rely upon your wealth? Will you rely upon our health system? You may do all those things. But at the very foundation, at the very base of it all, you must rely upon Christ. Can you see yourself saying, as Job said, upon hearing that all of his children, remember that, all of his children were wiped out in a building collapse. And what did Job say? He hid his knees in dust and ashes and he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I could. I I don't know if I could be like Job. I can't imagine how hard that would have been. I would pray that God would give me the strength not not to not only say it, I could say it, but would I really, really mean it? I pray God would give me the strength to mean it. Have you ever ever even contemplated such things? If you haven't, may I humbly suggest that you do. By doing so, you will be reminded of how gracious and truly merciful our God is. And it will drive you to your knees in thanksgiving for what He's given you. It will also help you have a sympathetic disposition towards those that are suffering sickness or loss of a child. Maybe you would be of some use to them. Because this concept, concept of tragic loss is not totally foreign to you. Right? You have thought of such things. You haven't experienced it, but at least you've contemplated it. Do not presume upon the Lord that tragedy will not find its way to your home. I take no joy in reminding you of this. But it is my job to prepare you, a people, for life and for death. Third, we are reminded of what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What was the outcome of the sickness and near death of this official's child? Only the salvation of an entire household. That's all. Right? Because of the pain and the heartache of the father for his child, in his desperation, he sought out Jesus. And because he sought out Jesus, he came to a saving knowledge of him. And in turn, he shared the good news. He shared his testimony with his household. Many were saved due to this close call. This is part of God's sovereign or decretive decree. God has the bigger picture in mind even when we don't. God makes what man means for evil to work for his good. Everything has a purpose. God uses all situations to bring honor and glory to himself. Do you believe that? Christian, do you believe that? In times of weal, it's an old fashioned word, in times of blessing, in times of peace and prosperity, it's rather easy to declare God is good and righteous and loving. Of course it is. <laughs> That's easy street. Life's good. How about when life goes sideways? You must see and understand that we are not God. We cannot see the bigger picture. We cannot know what is to come. All we can do is declare God the maker and ruler of the world. And once again, look to Job, who said, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Lastly, We must learn that when Jesus speaks, things happen. Jesus spoke the world into existence. He didn't wave a magic wand. He didn't cast a spell. He simply said, let there be, and there was, period. In this case, Jesus didn't have to be present with the child in order for the child to recover. All that was required was for Jesus to declare it. And it was so. Jesus left us his word. We are called in many circles, and Christians used to know this. We are called people of the book. We're called people of the book. The book has words. So that makes us people of words. As Pastor Doug Wilson likes to say, as stated in my previous sermon a couple weeks ago, do you want to know God's will for your life? Read the words that He has graciously left you. It's right there. He left us 66 books. 66. Do you know how many chapters are in this thing? 1,189 chapters. That's a lot of chapters. Do you know how many verses? 31,103 verses. Do you know how many words? I knew you were waiting to hear how many words are in the Bible. Only 807,361. That's a lot of words, folks. Every word is God-breathed and is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that... Anyone want to finish that? No? So that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. It always confuses me to hear of people who want to hear a word from God... But somehow they neglect to open their Bibles. 807,361 words right here. God has left us a word or two. Right? How many more do you think you need? Christian, do not neglect your book. You, me, nobody will ever plunge the depths of this book. You can read it a thousand times and you will still learn even more. You will never reach the depths, ever. If you want positive things to happen in your life, read the book. Obey the book. Believe the book, for it is the very word of God Almighty. I know you've been waiting for my conclusion, so here it is. John has shown us over the last two chapters that something significant has happened with the arrival of Jesus Messiah. It's a big deal. The Savior of the world has come, first for the Jew and for the Greek. By the way, if you're not Jewish, you're Greek. You're a barbarian. You're a heathen. You're the, you're the ones that were outcast, right? But now the gospel The Messiah, your Messiah, my Messiah has come. Right? He came to save the religious. He came to save the unreligious. He came to save the wealthy. And he came to save the poor. God indeed shows no partiality. This means that there isn't a single person on this planet that we should not share the gospel with. There is not one person or people group that we should not be praying for. The good news of the gospel is a universal message of salvation for all who will hear. Knowing that, I repeat the exhortation given by our God. Go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Will you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time together. Lord, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you for the salvation for wretched sinners such as we are and that we can stand before you on the day of judgment clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved because of his blood on the cross. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.